You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. Good morning. Um, what, what's something that when you were a child you believed, but as you've gotten older, you no longer believe? Uh, when I was a kid, I swore I was going to marry Kimberly, the pink Power Ranger. Uh, I thought I was going to dig up dinosaur bones as a career, like, uh, like Alan Grant from Jurassic Park. Like I thought that was going to be my, my future. It wasn't. Uh, I have a close friend of mine, and I was waiting to tell the story the kids got out. I had a close friend of mine, uh, when he was in sixth grade, he was in English class. And the journal prompt for that day was, write the story about the time you found out that, that Santa Claus wasn't real. And for my friend, that was the day in that class. And I gotta imagine like the shock that took over his, his mind and his heart as he looked around the room to see if anyone else was in that same club. They're busy writing their stories and he's like, am I the only one here? <laughs> Today was that day. Goes home, dad, you're never gonna believe this. <laughs> What's something you believed as a kid that you no longer believe? I mean, all of us had this season of, of, of childhood where when we get in trouble or we're afraid, if we just close our eyes or we do this or do this, we think that the trouble disappears along with it. If, if I can't see it, it can't see me. Uh, a lot of us have that. Uh, a lot of kids have an incredible faith in their parents that their parents are invincible or their parents are all-knowing. Uh, as, a, as a father of four daughters, 11 and, and down, I can tell you that that season ends by age 11. Uh, but there's things that we believe as kids that just as we have it life experience, as we realize, oh, there's, our parents can get things wrong, it, it, it shapes our worldview differently. There's things that we believed as a kid that as we get older, we no longer believe because experience shows us it's just not true. And this brings us to today's scripture passage from Paul in 1 Corinthians. And he says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. Now, I used to think that that verse was about video games. Like, when I get older, it's time to put away the childish things, it's time to put away the video games, and it's not that. And as I'm an adult, there's times I get frustrated that I'm still childish in emotional ways or relational ways or business, whatever, money stuff, whatever. There's times in my life as an adult that I'm like, man, I still am immature or inexperienced or still childish in some ways, and that can be, be frustrating. But what does it mean to, to think like a child? And so this morning, I kind of want to walk through just the progression of development, how our conscious develops from womb to adult, and what that might mean for faith. So as we start off in, in, in existence, we are in the womb, and our worldview is pretty limited. It's small, uh, it's dark probably, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not a scientist, guys. Uh, we, we develop consciousness around 27 weeks, 28 weeks, and that means that we begin to understand touch, and taste and sound and light and voices. We begin to be able to distinguish voices in the womb, but still our worldview is severely limited. We can only see what's right in front of us. And then ideally nine months later, all of a sudden, boom, we're in the world. And can you imagine like the paradigm shift of thinking that all life was is what was taking place inside the womb. Then all of a sudden you're out of there and you're like, whoa, there's like people, there's lights, there's, all, there's oxygen. Like there's all this stuff that I wasn't really aware of. Uh, as we come into existence. 
And then for the next stretch, next year or two, we, we are pretty attached to our primary caregivers. And really for like the first nine months, we don't even know the difference between us and them. We're so attached to the people taking care of us. And ideally that's a healthy attachment. Ideally things are going well. Uh, they, we still depend on, on the other humans for food and shelter and connection. And so it's not really until nine months in that we start to realize, hey, I'm actually a separate thing than my parent. I'm actually my own person, my own human. So our consciousness begins to develop a little bit slowly over time. Now, ideally in that phase, we have secure attachment. That's not always the case. But in that moment we develop, in those moments we develop secure attachment, but also self-differentiation. We learn that we can be connected to other people, but we are also our own entity, our own person. So from womb to, this, to, to infant and, and, and slight development of realizing we're our own people, and then as we get older, that, the, that differentiation continues to grow. And then for the next 15, 18, 20 years, we are formed heavily, we are influenced heavily by our local community, primarily our family unit, whatever that looks like. Uh, and then also, if, we get, if, you're, if you happen to go to church as a kid, or uh, then your faith community can shape you. If you go to school, then your classmates and your teachers can shape you. But generally, that development is confined to a pretty localized community. Sports, church, school, family. Uh, and, and we begin to develop who we are, but we're deeply shaped. Our worldview, the way that we think the world operates and exists, why we're here, all those things begin to begin developed in those first 18-ish years, and they're mainly influenced by a local community, which is a limited experience. It's bigger than the womb, but it's not the ultimate experience. And then as we get older, perhaps, this isn't true for everybody, we go to college, we move out of town for a while, we develop friendships and relationships with people that grew up in places different than ours. And with the invention of the internet, obviously, and like cars and stuff like that, uh, we have the ability now to connect sooner, uh, but we have the ability to connect globally. And so our understanding of the world continues to expand as we learn about different parts of the world, the way they operate. Now, this, this is just the natural progression and development of being a human being. When you're in the womb, it's a very limited experience. Then you come out of that, and for a while, it's still a limited experience. You're still basically attached to a, to a pretty localized community, and then that expands. That's natural, that's healthy, that's good. The challenge as we get reach out further and, and further with connection and understanding different parts of the world is how do we maintain fidelity or faithfulness to the things that we believed as a, as a child, the things we were taught by our family? How do we like honor that and, and, get, and hold on to that if it's necessary or helpful or healthy while also integrating this new information? And I'll say it like this, like the womb is important and vital for our sustenance in that phase of our life. Like we need to be in the womb, it's a beautiful thing, but if we stay in the womb longer than we need to, it's fatal. It's the same way with development as we grow and expand. We can't just stay in our limited experience of being in the womb. At some point, we have to kind of burst forth and experience uh, an expansion of the world in reality. So Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, I spoke like a child, but as I matured, as I became an adult, as I grew up, I put away childish things. And Paul's story, of course, is a strong example of, of kind of an evolving faith. He started off as Jewish, but eventually became a, a, a front runner for Christianity, a missionary for, for Christ. And his faith continued to evolve as he experienced other cultures and experienced Christ. So growth is a natural part of our journey from womb to adulthood. And the challenge is how do we integrate those things that were valuable in the past 
with the new experiences we have in the present. Now, I want to take that same lens of, of, of growth and progression and just apply it to a different thing, and that's our understanding of the universe. Now, for the majority of, of history, like the majority of the history of the human experience, we believed in what was called the geocentric cosmological view, which means that the earth is the center of the universe. And of course that makes sense because the technology we had basically told us that. Uh, so the earth is the center of the universe, the sun and the moon and the stars and the other planets, all those things rotate around us. And we believe that for the majority of our human history. In most religious worldviews, unless they were developed in the past 500 years, most religious worldviews were created under that understanding of the cosmos. So when you look at the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Mayans or the Jew, uh, Jewish people or Christians or Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, whatever, like those faiths were developed while the worldview of the cosmos was that the earth is the center of the universe. So when you look at like the Mayans or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Egyptians, you see a lot of astrology. They, they look at the stars and they find signs and meaning and how the stars are oriented to the earth. The earth is still the centerpiece. And when you look at Judaism and Christianity, the creation story is geocentric. It is earth-focused. God created uh, the, the, the earth, and, and he, the focus of the evolution of creation is on the earth, not the cosmos, if that makes sense. He's talking about everything from the, the earth perspective. When you look at the story in Joshua where they're fighting a battle and the sun stood still, that story was written from the perspective that the sun rotates around the earth. Now, as, as science has discovered, that's not necessarily, that's not true. But in that moment when Joshua or whoever wrote that story, they were writing from the perspective of God made light continue to shine down on this place so that we could continue the battle. But from his perspective, the sun stood still. That's a geocentric, an earth-centered view of the cosmos. In fact, when you get to the, the, the birth of Jesus in the New Testament, the wise men followed the stars. The stars guided them to where Jesus would be born. That's still like an earth-centric view of the universe. And it wasn't until the 16th century, until Copernicus and then Galileo uh, began to push forth this, this other idea. It's called the heliocentric view of the universe, which is that the sun is the center of the, the universe, the center of our solar system, and Earth actually re revolves and rotates around it. Now, that view faced a ton of resistance, uh, because primarily from the Catholic Church, because it challenged the, the historical notion that uh, the earth was the center of the universe. It, it challenged the biblical narrative in a sense. And they felt threatened by that. So it, was a, it took a long, a lot of intellectual debate, a lot of heated debate uh, to eventually kind of come over and say, actually, you're right. The earth isn't the center of the universe. And it's not the center of our solar system. We rotate around the sun. It took a long time to kind of move and shift towards that. Now, that view only lasted a few hundred years as, as science continued to evolve and develop. And, and people like Einstein or uh, Newton so like that, we begin to realize actually the universe is much bigger than that. And even that's not quite right. The sun isn't the center of the universe. It's just the center of our solar system. The universe is massive. And Earth is one planet in one solar system. And now with technology, we, we have like 100 billion observable galaxies. So we're just one planet in one solar system in one galaxy amidst 100 billion galaxies. Like if you took... Warren Buffett's net worth, $100 billion. Like, that's how many galaxies we can observe. Like, there might be more. And 27% and of the observable universe is made up of dark matter. And we don't know what that is. And that should maybe terrify you. I don't know. The, the universe is massive. It's way bigger than we ever thought. And there's so much that we don't know. 
and scientists are kind of giving these new discoveries. So the question is, how do we take uh, our old um, valued traditions and beliefs and, 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 and faith and integrate them with new discoveries? And there's kind of two ways you can respond. One way you can respond to, to new discoveries is to view them as a threat. And when you view them as a threat, you tighten up, you stiffen, you kind of close off your mind to possibilities. You might get violent. You might begin to treat others as, as enemies or as dangerous. That's one possibility in response to new discoveries. You can stiffen up and view it as a threat. Um, but another possibility is that you could view it um, with curiosity and with humility. Last year when that new telescope came out, the name is not the Hubble, but the other one, the name after the guy, Google it later. I forgot it. When those pictures started coming out, it rocked my world. Like it blew my mind. Because there's like these little spiral things, like there's this picture with like thousands of little spirals, and like all, each of those are galaxies. And that's just like one small picture among the whole big picture. And it's just like, this thing is way bigger than I thought. And there's a, there's a position when you, when you take that kind of information in where you can not be threatened by it, but you can be humbled by it. And you can say, what, 27% of the universe, we don't even know what it is. You can be humbled by that and say, I'm just one person among billions on one planet, on one solar system, in one galaxy, among 100 billion galaxies. And maybe I don't know everything that I think that I know. Maybe I'm not uh, a know-it-all. Maybe, maybe I don't have the, the, the entirety of information at my disposal. Maybe there's things that are much bigger than me. And that can lead to humility. That can lead to curiosity. That can lead to a bigger view of God. Like if, if the universe is this massive and we're still discovering more and more and God created all that, that just makes him that much exponentially more powerful and intelligent and beautiful and, and creative. Like it can expand our view of God. It can reset our view of ourselves and maybe put us in proper context when we interact with people that are coming from different perspectives. I was thinking about this. We come from like the womb and then our family and then like our local community and then our experiences that we expand. And then sometimes we interact with other people, well, everybody that came from the womb, right? The, their womb, their local community, they're, like, and eventually these, these things interact and, 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 and mesh and we have to learn how to integrate who they are and their experiences with our own. It's an opportunity for growth and expansion of faith. It doesn't have to be a threat to faith. Now, Jesus uh, was big on this. He constantly, his, his people, his tribe, his disciples were Jewish men that grew up uh, around Israel, which is not a very big country. They didn't have cars. Uh, sometimes they had horses or camels or stuff, mules. There's a story with Jesus and donkey, right? But they didn't travel very far. So they grew up in, in small towns and didn't travel very far. So they had very specific worldviews that they were held pretty tightly. And then when they found Jesus, they were just blown away by his charisma, by what he was inviting them into, by his wisdom, by his stature. They were, they were compelled to follow him. And Jesus began to take them outside of their pocket, take them to places they weren't used to. They, they, they traveled on a boat across the sea. And like, Jesus, you know, like, this is the bad part of town, right? Like, the other side of the, the, other side of the Sea of Galilee, like, that's, that's where the riffraff hang out. Jesus like, hey, we're good. And then they hang out with Samaritans. They hang out with, with the Samaritan woman in John 4. They hang out with a demon-possessed guy named, uh, where Legion possessed him. They have all these experiences around people that didn't fit, fit their notion of, of kingdom people, people that are outside of God's favor and love. And Jesus was constantly bringing them into contact with these outsiders. 
and their prejudices would begin to show up and they'd get frustrated. They would be judgmental and critical. And Jesus would constantly be patient with them and say, just wait, just see how God is also at work here in ways you couldn't even fathom. The kingdom is bigger than you think. It's not just limited to, to Galilee or Capernaum or Jerusalem. It's outside of these bounds as well. Jesus was constantly pushing his disciples to, to stretch their imagination of how God was at work with other people. And eventually, over time, they got it. Some people didn't. They walked away. They couldn't let go of their prejudice. But some of them eventually began to expand that, and they began to, to, to plant churches all across the Roman Empire as they saw God do incredible things. Their minds were stretched. Their faith expanded and evolved to include people from all walks of life. Now, there's a story. Uh, the oldest story in the Bible is not actually Genesis 1. Uh, it's not the first, Genesis isn't the first written book of the Bible. It's the book of Job. Now, the book of Job is wild. Like, it's, it's, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to tell you a story, and it's crazy. Job is a guy that uh, everything is going right for him. He's doing everything right. He's obeying the law. He's blessed. He's got a big family, big friends, big money. Like, he's like ideal American dream. Just everything's going great for Job. And all of a sudden, he gets taken. And just everything gets taken. His family, his money, his wealth, his security, his health is taken from him. And he's just broken. And his friends come to him and say, Job, what did you do? Like, what did you do to deserve this? Because this is how we know how God works. This is how God operates. If you do good, good things happen to you. If you do bad, bad things happen to you. Something bad happened to you. Let's do the math. What did you do? This is a childish view of God. We all have this view of the world when we're kids, that, that good, people, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Like that's a childish view as, uh, to have. That's their view of God. God is in this specific box. Do good, good things happen. Do bad, bad things happen. Job had bad things happen, therefore Job did something bad. And Job's like, I don't know. I didn't do it, man. I'm telling you, I promise I didn't do anything bad. And like, bro, this is how it works. We know you did something bad. What did you do to deserve getting your whole family taken? Your house burned down, your money gone, you got sores all over you. What did you do? He's like, I don't know, man. It's bad. <laughs> and eventually Job just gets mad and he, and he snaps. He says, God, what's going on here? I don't understand. I did all the right things. Bad stuff's happening. And God goes on for like five chapters. And it's really amazing, poetic. I'm kind of making fun of it here. He goes on for five chapters about God's like, who do you think you are that you understand me? Here's the reality. What God didn't say to Job is, by the way, I bet Satan 20 bucks that I could take all this stuff from you and you wouldn't break. Like that was the story. That's weird. That's a weird story. Like the devil walked up to, to God and was like, hey, I bet I can break your boy Job. He's like, 20 bucks says you can't. You're on. Job doesn't break. And then God's like, here's the deal. Like I formed the cosmos. He didn't tell him about the 20 bucks, right? It's weird. It gets weirder. I, forever I thought that God resurrected Job's family. That's how I made sense of that story in my head. I went and read it last night. That's not what happens. He gives them another family. He gives he, the Tom Brady treatment or something here. I guess it's just weird. He's like, hey man, that's my bad. But how about a new wife and some gold rings? Job's like, how many gold rings? It's <laughs> like, a crazy story. It's one of the first ones read and they were still working it out. They're working out the keys, okay? But here's what I love about the story of Job. A good point is this. They had a, a specific understanding of how God worked and operated. And God's like, I don't fit in that box. 
The box he fit in after was kind of weird. That's okay. <laughs> I don't fit in this box. And there's this moment, I encourage you guys to uh, this tonight or something. Go to Job, the end of Job, where God starts talking to Job about who God is. It's beautiful. It's, po- it's poetic. It's awesome. We're going to sing a song in a second that just is just that, those chapters. It's powerful. And here's the point after I made fun of Job. Here's the point. We start off in the womb. We can't stay there. We, as we develop as humans, we have certain expectations and, and boxes that we put God in. But as we experience life, we have to, and it doesn't work with the box, we have to expand and integrate how we understand God. And that God works in, in bigger ways than we can think. And my main thing, probably every sermon I give is something like this. When you experience people that have different perspectives and worldviews in you, be humble, be curious, and be kind. Because you don't know that much, I don't know that much, our perspective is so limited. God is bigger than we can imagine, and he's working in ways that we can't see or perceive or even grasp, right? Um, So that's it. I'm going to ask Miles to to pray for us, and then we're going to sing a reflection song for you.